We are talking about a lot of money today on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Yesterday was the campaign finance deadline, and man, are there revelations in it. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Layla Tassi, Lisa Garvin, and Laura Johnston, who love to see dollar signs in news stories. You guys ready to go? <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. We know at last who were the people who paid for the dark money campaign that sought to torpedo first Dennis Kucinich and later Justin Bibb in the Cleveland mayor's race. I'm talking about the money behind that awful postcard that some saw as a racist attack on Bibb. Layla, we were waiting for this day. Mm -hmm. We told everybody last summer when it came, we would publish the names. Yes, we were eager to out whoever was behind this, uh, this dark money pack. City Hall reporter Courtney Astolfi dug into these filings yesterday with the uh, Federal Elections Commission. She discovered that the the top donors who gave between $42,000 and $50,000 to the super PAC known as Citizens for Change included the Cleveland Building and Construction Trades Council, which is led by Dave Wondolowski. Cleveland Browns owners, Jimmy and Dee Haslam, former Forest City CEO, Albert Ratner, and the Southern Strategy Super PAC, which oddly bills itself as as dedicated to the engagement of new and unlikely black, young, and suburban women voters. If, If that's their constituency, it looks like they got behind the wrong candidate. But anyway, as you mentioned, Chris, Citizens for Change began as an effort to prevent Dennis Kucinich from winning. And I suspect that's what drew some of these donors into the fold. But then somewhere along the line, they began taking aim at Bibb in ways that just came across to many people as dirty and sinister and racist. And in the one postcard you're referring to that many found especially offensive, the designers appeared to have darkened Bibb's skin tone. Now, the kind of bombshell news that bubbled out of this this story uh, yesterday was that after Courtney's initial story published online yesterday afternoon, she received an email from one political consultant who had worked for the PAC, Gerald Austin. And he told Courtney that he wasn't involved in the Bib mailer or another one that likened Dennis Kucinich to Dennis the Menace. Um, Austin said Dave Wondolowski of the Cleveland Building and Construction Trades Council was responsible for the Bib mailer and did it without his knowledge. Yowza. I mean, Courtney reached well, out to well, Wondolowski, but he didn't respond. Yeah, let me stop you there. We had just by Kismet, we had a profile on Dave Wondolowski on Sunday right. done by reporter Caitlin Durbin that laid out all of his various influential places. It's a name that pretty much nobody knew until he stood up last last November and or October and said in a campaign event that he was going to kick the S out of Justin Bibb. Right. Caught a lot of attention for using such ridiculous language on the Saturday before Election Day. But, but here's the thing. If this is true, if he is the guy behind what many ministers and the Bibb campaign and others in the community saw as tinged with racism, that postcard you're talking about, the photo. And we hear from people all the time saying, why, why is it racist? How do you know it was changed? It's like, you know what? Give us the original photo. If you want to say it's not changed? Show us the original. No one has stood up. Maybe Dave Wondolowski will. But if he's behind that, this guy is one of the four members of the Cuyahoga County Elections Board. That's right, right. I mean, how do you have a guy that's doing that kind of stuff if it's true? We haven't heard from him sitting on the board that makes rulings on elections. I mean, what would black voters think about that? Right. Well, knowing that he's also on the Port Authority, although it sounds like Justin Bibb's going to boot him. 
And Mike DeWine just recently put this guy on the commission that nominates people to the Public Utilities Commission. And it's like, what? We can't do better than that. We have to have somebody that plays this kind of dirty game in politics. That's right, right. I mean, Caitlin's story does a great job of of laying all of that out and how he had kind of taken on a persona through the years with all these these uh, various appointments to public boards as as something of a kingmaker, you know, that people would come and court his endorsement, um, you know, especially in his powerful position with the building trades union. But but perhaps his political influence is, is eroding after his chosen candidate, Kevin Kelly, lost the mayoral race. That's sort well, of the and they were crux behind of the story. Brad Sellers. Yeah, you right. Know, Brad Sellers. Brad right. Sellers. Yeah, I, yeah, and then, absolutely. you know, that melted down. It's a very close tie to Bill Mason, who is a longtime, well, he thinks of himself as a longtime political kingmaker. Um, seems like he's having no juice now because nothing he does succeeds. Uh, what, what about what you said earlier that at some point, along the way this changed. You know, we kept hearing, no one will go on the record about this. We keep saying, if you go on the record, we'll write it, that the people who donated to this were told this is about educating Cleveland about what Dennis Kucinich's mayoral term was like mm-hmm. 40 years ago and had never heard their money would be used to target an upcoming young black leader who was running for mayor named Justin Bibb. I and mean, we, we had heard they were just furious that their money was used that way, but no one will say it. And, you know, as of now, they're the funders of a campaign that many people viewed as racist. You would think they'd stand up today and say, no, 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 no. That was done by one person, renegade. We do not support that. We'd never support that. Yeah, you would think they would. I mean, that really is the ultimate bait and switch here. Um, and they thought that they're, they were pursuing one goal and, and it just got changed up you know, uh, the rug pulled out from under him. I think, uh, you know, the, all the more reason why someone should speak up today. If anyone, if, if anyone out there is listening, who's a party to this story, call Courtney Astolfi. <laughs> She's waiting to hear from you. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty amazing. Okay. It's today in Ohio. The officer in the Tamir Rice case should never have been hired based on his performance as an officer in other departments, and he ultimately lost his job for not disclosing fully his past. You'd think Cleveland police would learn a lesson and not hire officers from other departments with problematic pasts. How many times did they do just that last year, according to a new court filing, Layla? This is so disappointing that we're this far into the police reform effort and and Cleveland police still can't fix a problem as simple as properly background checking new hires. Hassan Aiden, the monitor overseeing the reform of Cleveland Police, attacked the city's hiring of officers from outside departments, saying the decision to offer jobs to three candidates last year illustrates a disregard for background investigations. Aiden filed this report in U.S. District Court in Cleveland late Sunday afternoon that says police investigators obtained information that should have prevented the officers from getting hired. They didn't name the officers in the report and where they had worked or what authorities found in their background investigations. At least two background investigations were reviewed of officers who weren't hired, but he said information contained in them should have disqualified them. The, the review of the background investigations was done to see how closely the department followed the standards that were set in place to improve the department. And apparently the answer was not well. <laughs> I mean, you know, the hiring process of new recruits or officers from other departments is, is known as lateral hires. And the process of vetting these candidates includes psychological and medical examinations and drug testing, things like that. 
um, the consent decree requires the city to conduct detailed background investigations to determine whether a prospective officer's employment history, drug use, and ability to work in diverse communities makes them, you know, a good candidate to work for Cleveland police. And, um, you know, Aiden's just saying in his filing that, you know, the, the what's contained in the detailed background investigatory uh, files that other agencies provided um, just appears that, you know, Cleveland police uh, didn't consider that material at all in their in their own investigations. So I, I was surprised they don't name them. But, you know, Adam Faris is probably the best crime reporter I've ever worked with in 40 years. And I have a feeling he'll figure out who those three guys are and he'll figure out what's in their backgrounds that made them unfit to be police officers. And I suspect that'll be a story we all want to read. Uh, we'll we'll see. I'm, I'm disappointed the monitor did not provide more details of what made them unfit. He's supposed to be looking out for the public and kind of kept all that stuff secret. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How much money is Ohio missing out on by not having legalized betting before one of the state's two football teams won the right to play in the Super Bowl? And Laura, as we know, it's not the Browns. It's not the Browns. It's the Bengals. But it's a crapshoot, as Seth Richardson puts it, on how much money we're losing out on. Obviously, the Supreme Court paved the way for states to legalize sports betting in 2018. Pennsylvania and West Virginia jumped aboard and they set their rules for their states. But we in Ohio dragged our feet until late 2021, and we don't think we're going to see betting really here until 2023, right? The very beginning, uh, January. So we don't know exactly what Ohio is losing on out on. Pennsylvania reported $30.6 million in bets placed on the 2020 Super Bowl between the Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers, and that resulted in a loss of $3.3 million for sports books, so no taxes. But uh, 2021 matchup between the Chiefs and the Buccaneers, Pennsylvania got uh, $53.6 million in bets that resulted in $9.4 million in revenue for sports books. And since Pennsylvania assesses a 34% tax on that, the state got about $3 million. Of course, these are not states that had, you know, the Steelers in the Super Bowl. So we don't know exactly what what, what it would mean here, but there's going to be a lot of people in Ohio that would want to place bets. Yeah, I know, but they'll have to go out of state to do exactly. it. It would have made it much easier to generate quite a bit of revenue if they had it up and running by now. And we'll see if they can get it up and running before Although, next year. Assuming that Ohioans are betting for the Bengals, the Bengals would have to lose in order for the state to make a lot of money off of it, which is okay. interesting. That is interesting. Okay, it's today in Ohio. What do we know about the state of the money invested in the U.S. Senate race in Ohio and the governor's race? Lisa, it is staggering how many millions of dollars are floating around in these races. Who has all the money? Well, uh, Republicans have all the money. Of course, most of the candidates are Republican as well. If we look at the GOP U.S. Senate race, Mike Gibbons is on top. He has $6.4 million on hand, although he loaned himself $3.5 million these 
campaign finance reports are for the fourth quarter of last year. Um, yeah, Mike Gibbons has loaned himself $11.4 million. That's 94% of his campaign war chest, but he is in the lead so far. Um, he spent $1.4 million in the last quarter and raised about $81,500 from individual donors. Um, right behind him is uh, Bernie Moreno. He has just over $2.1 million on hand. Again, another wealthy candidate. He loaned himself $750,000 for a total that he's loaned himself to the campaign for $3.75 million. He spent about $3.6 million in the last quarter. Um, as for the Democrats, Tim Ryan, who is way ahead of his competitor, he has $5 million on hand, which is pretty good. I think he's raised a lot of money in the last quarter because he was kind of lagging behind before. He spent about $2.9, I'm sorry, he raised $2.9 million in the last quarter and spent about one and a half. His uh, opponent, his Democratic opponent, Morgan Harper, is a Columbus attorney. She's only raised about $436,000 and she spent about half of, well, more than half of that. She spent $314,900. And then we, we haven't had reports. The deadline was last night for these final campaign disclosures before the election. We have not yet heard from uh, Republican Senate candidates, Jane Timken. She did raise $2.1 she said in a press release, and she's got about three 3.6 million on hand. She's also one who has loaned herself money, about $2 million there. J.D. Vance also has not reported, um, but he did raise 1 million from 11,000 individual donors. So he's getting a lot of small money there. But the Protect Ohio Values Pack has spent about 2.5 million on, on ads, text messages, and other messaging for the Vance campaign. Uh, Matt Dolan has not, he has not filed any reports at all, but um, he has not filed yet, but he lent himself $10.5 million. Josh Mandel, haven't heard from him. And then the dark horse in the race, or whatever you want to call him, Mark Pukita, he raised $25,556 and counted the use of an RV that he's using in his campaign at $16,300, and he spent about $102,000 in the last quarter. He only has about $6,900 dollars on hand right now so let me ask you something you know we all suffered through the those terrible bernie moreno ads where he came across like a, a used car salesman even though he <laughs> used to be a new car salesman i mean they were terrible everybody moaned about them they were everywhere with all this money out there are the next few months going to be that time seven are we just going to get blasted by terrible political ads I don't know, but Bernie came out of the, the gate early and often. I mean, I started seeing his ads over a month ago, and he's got at least three separate ones circulating out there. But, you know, he's, I don't know. I think it's probably going to ramp up because they're going to try and, you know, uh, separate themselves from each other, although I don't know how the Trumpists are going to do that. So, yeah, I think we should gird our loins for a flood of campaign ads. So the governor has nine million dollars right yeah. I mean, nine million dollars to spend on his campaign that's a staggering sum of money it really is and he raised over three million dollars in donations since um august 1st of last year so he really has been raking in the dough he got ten thousand dollars each from 120 donors and um he got over, let's see, $521,000 in-kind money from the Ohio uh, Republican Party. His uh, opponent is way behind, Jim Renacci. 
only has $4.1 million on hand, but he's only raised about $149,000 since uh, July of last year. And he loaned himself $4.8 million. He spent $1.8 million so far. So, And now the Democrats, um, we haven't had really any reporting from them, but Nan Whaley says she's gotten uh, $1.25 million in donations since July of last year. John Cranley got a million dollars in donations, and he's got almost $2 million on hand. So yeah, lots of money for We're not now. talking about it today, but where there was a good bit of money donated to the Supreme Court Chief Justice campaigns. Okay. And we're going to want to talk. We'll have a story, I think, coming. We're going to want to talk to the organizations that donated to Sharon Kennedy because she supported the gerrymandering in Ohio. She would have left us gerrymandered. And and if she becomes Chief Justice, that'll, that'll spin the court. So we're going to call these organizations and say, so you support gerrymandering and try and have them explain why they're donating to somebody who would so clearly keep the state government lopsided out of proportion with the way people vote. It's today in Ohio. Why did the U.S. Justice Department decide not to reopen the investigation into the 2014 police killing of 12-year-old Tamir Rice, despite a request from the family after the department closed the investigation in the waning days of Donald Trump. Layla, they're very disappointed. They thought that the Biden administration would do the right thing here. Yeah, John Coniglia reports that Kristen Clark, who's an assistant U.S. Attorney General, sent a letter to a lawyer for Tamir's family last week to let them know of the prosecutor's conclusion that information the family presented in recent months doesn't change the Justice Department's decision to close that case back in 2020. When Barack Obama was in the White House, the Justice Department had opened an investigation into Tamir's death, but it kind of languished, really, until Donald Trump shut it down in 2020 before leaving office. And Tamir's mother, Samaria Rice, has been fighting to get the investigation reopened ever since. Now, Clark says they just could not prove beyond reasonable doubt that Timothy Lohman, who was the Cleveland patrolman who shot and killed Tamir Rice, that he acted willfully when he shot him. Um, and, uh, you know, Clark emphasized in her letter that, quote, by, by no means should you view the department's 2020 decision as an exoneration of Timothy Lohman's actions. But, you know, Samaria Rice was just so upset by this news. She said, the Justice Department made a poor decision. I'm devastated and disgusted by it. I have no understanding how a 12-year-old boy can't get justice in this country. I'm at a loss for words. It's pitiful and pathetic. Um, I, I'm so sorry to hear this is the outcome. I'm with Ms. Rice. It seems there will be no justice for Tamir's death, and that is just heart-wrenching. I wonder whether this came down to they looked at the prospects for getting a conviction and realized how difficult it would be. You'd have a jury of 12 analyzing what his motive was, what he thought, how scared he was. And to get them to agree that this was a willful homicide would be difficult. And it and throughout that, there'd be all the angst and all of the difficulties. And I wonder if they just decided the risk wasn't worth the the emotional and financial cost of trying. Yeah, I, I guess that's true. I mean, I would have thought that we're in a different moment now than we were in 2020 when Trump shut it down. You know, I just think, you know, the the Black Lives Matter movement has gained such momentum in the last couple of years. And I would have hoped 
I would have hoped for a better outcome here or that there would be a second look at it or that there would be a consideration that jurors might not just you know, decide that the police officer was justified in feeling fearful of a 12-year-old black boy. Um, well, and as you pointed out, it's not illegal to be sitting there with a gun. Right. We're an open carry it's an state. Open carry so state. even if they thought he was a man with a gun, they should have. You don't uh, get out and yeah, shoot people for right, that. Right. So, yeah, it's a sad day for the Rice family. It's today in Ohio. Just how bad is winter storm Landon supposed to be when it hits Northeast Ohio starting on Wednesday? Laura, we don't talk about the weather a lot, except at the beginning of the podcast. But this looks like one miserable storm of heavy, wet snow that causes heart attacks and downed power lines. Yes. I mean, it seems dire. Um, and everybody's talking about the the winter storm warning came out this morning and it's nine to 16 inches of that wet, heavy snow. And it could be preceded by freezing rain and wintry mix and, and, you know, just ice. So I think everyone is just bracing themselves for what this is going to look like. People have called their plow companies. They're, they're getting ready. Kids are already banking on a snow day again. And, uh, yeah, so enjoy the sunshine today because it looks like it's going to be pretty bad from Wednesday night starting at 7 p.m. all the way through Friday morning. So I hope no one has any big plans to drive to on Thursday. Yeah, I have a feeling it's going to be two snow days for the kids, a four-day weekend coming courtesy of the February weather. We haven't had that heavy, wet snow this year. Most of the big snow we got in January was the powdery, lighter stuff. Uh, you do see people struggling when it's just like oozing with water. Right. It's a lot harder for things like snow throwers to work. So I know you've got your snow thrower. It probably can handle this stuff. We just got our shovels. So we've already warned the kids, hey, if you don't have a snow, if you're if you're not in school, you will be helping with this driveway and making sure that all the, the sidewalks are shoveled too. Because Lisa was talking before the podcast about there's nowhere else to put the snow. So you got to be strategic about where you're piling it up. Well, well, although we may get a little bit of a melt-off tomorrow when it rains, th this is the kind of snowstorm where you're really wise to go out in the middle and at intervals and clear it. Because if you wait until you have 14 inches of heavy, wet snow, uh, uh, that's just a lot more work than doing Plus, it. that's like crust. Like, you have different layers, and then they're shoveling at different rates, you know? And you, it's not, when you get down and you're just, like, hacking at the bottom, that is never fun. Well, and it's supposed to get bitterly cold the next day, Friday, I think. So this stuff will crust over. Really looking ugly. So I imagine the grocery stores will be busy the next 24 hours as people stock up. It's today in Ohio. Does a Nelsonville Democrat have enough crossover appeal to defeat a Republican incumbent in the Ohio auditors race this year? Lisa, this is interesting. You, you have a Democrat from the rural part of Ohio. Could he overcome Keith Faber, who we should point out, has voted for gerrymandered maps in Ohio. And I don't know if this guy has enough crossover appeal. I mean, this is Ohio after all. I mean, the GOP stranglehold is pretty strong here, but he is Democrat Taylor Sappington. He is currently the city auditor of Nelsonville, Ohio. He did file earlier to uh, with the Secretary of State to run for the state auditor position, now held by Keith Faber. He was known for his uh, 2018 race against incumbent Republican uh, Republican lawmaker Jay Edwards, who is out of Athens. And the New York Times had a big opinion column. They said, oh, this, you know, he's the perfect red state Democrat. He could take the post. Well, 
he lost by 15 points. But, you know, that was blamed due to his uh, lack of support from progressives in the Democratic Party. Who knows? But um, this is kind of at least we have a candidate. I mean, you know, Democratic statewide candidates have been filing late this year. And in earlier years, we often didn't have Democratic candidates at all because all the GOPs are incumbents and they're all running again, finding Democratic candidates to run against these entrenched, uh, you know, Republicans is pretty difficult. Um, Back in 2018, we did have candidates for all the big statewide races, attorney general, governor, secretary of state, auditor, and treasurer. But right now we only have two Democrats running for governor, John Cranley and Nan Whaley. We've got one guy, Jeff Crossman of Parma, who's running against Dave Yost for the attorney general position. Chelsea Clark, who is from Forest Park, she's running for secretary of state, but nobody is challenging incumbent uh, treasurer Robert Sprague. So I guess the Democrats maybe think they might have a little bit of a chance, so they're jumping into the race late, but we'll see how it shakes out. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. What does a former Navy captain want to do in Lorraine to bring back the shipbuilding industry? Laura, the shipbuilding industry was closed down by George Steinbrenner, the former and late Yankees owner back in the 70s. Right. Actually, I mean, that's an interesting fact about Lorraine, but it had been going on for more than 100 years. So this is an idea that Edward Bartlett, the founder of Bartlett Maritime Corporation, hopes will come to fruition, and he thinks it has a shot that he wants the federal government to build what would be the Navy's only inland shipyard for submarines. And it also calls for a maintenance facility in Lordstown. That's about 80 miles away on the turnpike, also close to a bunch of rail lines, which is one of the reasons he says this will work. Marcy Captor, Sherrod Brown, and Tim Ryan are all for it. And Captor says the idea has merit. The plan involves building two dry docks and a 50-acre building that would handle the major maintenance on four Navy submarines at a time. It's more than a billion-dollar project, and a lot of these have closed since the end of the Cold War, which makes a lot of sense. There's only four Navy shipyards designed to do this kind of maintenance in the country, and because of that, there is a huge delay in getting the maintenance done. So. Um, Bartlett thinks this could kind of solve a lot of problems and give thousands of jobs to Northeast Ohioans. Yeah, it's interesting that it's been that long since the, the Lorraine was the center of a of a shipbuilding. Uh, again, it's a big investment. You got to get people to to come do it, but they're on the the lake, and so they do have some claim to it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm still a little unclear on how exactly this would work. The submarines are about 377 feet long and 33 feet wide. They go through this maintenance every 10 to 12 years and they get used for 30 years or longer. I don't know where we're using submarines uh, right now, but if the maintenance has to be done, I mean, I, I yeah, I think there are a lot of questions still to be answered here, but it is an intriguing idea. Okay. It's today in Ohio. How is the Omicron variant causing many homeless people in Cleveland to put themselves into greater jeopardy? Lisa, our numbers are dropping very quickly. It does seem like Omicron is leaving. Still high, still up in under just under 5,000, but way down from where they were even weeks ago. But the homeless population seems like it's getting walloped. Well, and and of course, I mean, they live in, you know, very precarious conditions. But a lot of the homeless people in Cleveland would rather sleep outside in frigid weather than risk exposure to Omicron in uh, shelters. 
Uh, Chris Nestrick, who's with the Northeast Ohio Coalition for the Homeless, says it's really hard to vaccinate this population. And you do have homeless people that will never go into a shelter. They're intractably homeless. They would rather stay outside. That's a hard population to vaccinate. You need a phone. You need an ID to make an appointment. You need transportation to your appointment. And most homeless people don't have these assets. However, uh, Michael Searing, who's uh, with the uh, Lutheran Metropolitan Ministries downtown on Lakeside, shelter, says shelter infection rates have remained low, which is pretty amazing. He said they have a 5% positive rate at his shelter, which holds about 365 people a night on average. But they have taken precautions over the months to to help with that. They've built these little eight by eight pods inside of the shelter that hold four people each. It's helped with social distancing and also given them a measure of privacy. Um, and there was also an $100 incentive for people to get their first vaccination dose at a county clinic and Metro helped with that. So yeah, the, that shows how fearful people are of Omicron. I mean, they would rather sleep outside than than go where they could catch the disease. So, wow. Yeah, and for the next few days, it's going to be even more perilous with all the, the bad snow that's supposed to come at the latter end of the week. It's today in Ohio, and that'll do it for a Tuesday discussion. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back on Wednesday for another roundup of the news. 